My name is John Fox, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to continue in our psalm series this morning, and uh, let me read it for you, and then I'll go ahead and pray again, and we'll kind of dive in and try to figure it out. Psalm 147 is where we're going to be this morning, the whole psalm. And it says this, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you communicate it to us and how we get to see this morning that you not only demand praise, but you enable praise from your people. God, would you help us to see you and love you and know you rightly this morning through your word and praise you as you rightly deserve in your name. Amen. Well, today ends our Summer in the Psalms series that we've been in. And uh, if you hadn't noticed, the weather is hotter than ever. Easily above 100, traffic has increased, and school pictures are flooding social media. All signs that summer is coming to an end and the fall is upon us. And with it, our summer series that we've been in is also coming to a close. It's a time of transition. A time of transition. Since before, or since we started the series, we learned from Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as the gates for the Psalms on the whole all 150 of them, uh, a couple things. Psalm 1 showed us that we really have to slow down and get our minds centered on God and His thoughts and what He says. We have to meditate on what God says so we can rightly view ourselves, the world, and God. Not only that, but Psalm 2, as it opens up to us the rest of the Psalms, shows us that as we live in the reality of Psalm 1, we slow down our lives we meditate on God's word, and we think of him correctly, then what we begin to see 
is a scene in the world that is far different from anything that we would imagine on our own. It is the scene of all the nations in the world, you and me and people in North Korea and South Korea and everywhere else raging against God. And in that rage, the rage is pointed and directed not at, not at any one of us or someone next to them. Rather, the rage is pointed at God's Messiah, His future coming King. And Psalm 2 shows us that it has always been God's plan to provide a king to rule the earth with an iron scepter if need be. And the people who submit to His rule are blessed. So whether it's Psalm 1 or Psalm 2, as the Psalms open, they give us this picture of what it means to be blessed, of a good life. And they tell us that to understand the Psalms correctly, you need to understand walking into the Psalms that it's about God, it's not about you, and it's about God's King, not about you. And every Psalm that we've covered this past summer has been living in that reality, whether it's a psalm of lament, or it's a psalm of celebration, or it's a psalm of thanksgiving, or it's a psalm of, of petition, all different ways to pray, but eventually they all go somewhere. They all end somewhere, and that is at the end of the psalms in praise. The end goal through all of it is praise to God, and that's where our series ends. And as we see, especially in this psalm, Psalm 147, it begins and ends literally with praise. Praise the Lord is the very first sentence, and the very last is praise the Lord. So in all the psalms, especially towards the end, we see that praise pervades God's people's lives, and it should ours as well. Whatever the transition, praise should pervade our transitions in life. And so it's a transition, obviously, in kind of the normal rhythms of life that we have and school kicking up, but it's also a transition time for our church. Over the past year, we've been in a tremendous transition time as we have been on the search for a new lead pastor. And the search has come to a close. That season today has an end, and we install later on at the end of this service Seth Thornton as the new lead pastor of the church. And I'm very grateful for this season uh, that God has had us, had us in as a church, but I'm also very grateful and expectant for this new season of the church that we have. I think it really allows us to join in with Psalm 147 and the end of the Psalms on the whole. Charles Spurgeon said about the end of the Psalms here, including Psalm 147, that the flow of the broad river of the book of Psalms ends in a cataract of praise. It's a wonderful way to think about it, that the flow of the broad river of the book of the Psalms ends in a cataract of praise. It's all going somewhere. The Niagara Falls that all this has been going towards is praise. And we need this as a church. We need to join in the chorus of the Psalms as a church. And I believe that God has prepared us to do that over the last year, certainly. Over the last year, our church has had the greatest difficulty of its life, eight years of life as a local church, but it's also served to make us more dependent on God. And 
with all that we've learned, all the, the endless hours that people have put in serving different capacities, all the, the new ways that people have stepped up to serve, and all of the heart involved in the work of serving in a local church is fantastic. And it is right because it's praise to God. But if, if we were to go through this past year as a church and we were to get to the end of it, and we would say, didn't we do an awesome job? Aren't we great? Then we would make an utter failure of everything for the past year. Why do I say that? It's because of one, Psalm 147. You see, Psalm 147 speaks to us, even in this transition, and what it tells us and what it teaches us is that broken people praise God best. The person who goes through difficulty in life and then at the end of it says, I did it in my own strength, in my own power, is the person that Psalm 147 would have nothing to do with. Nothing. And so today, I'll give you the main point from the passage, and it's this, that broken people praise God best. Broken people praise God best. And there's an answer to why this is the case in this psalm, and it's actually pretty, pretty straightforward. It works out easily for us this morning. There are three main divisions in the text, and those are what we get the points from. And the first is Psalm 147, verses 1 to 6. And so let me tell you, this is the first point that we see this morning, that God breaks to humble. God breaks to humble, and the point's in themselves actually build on each other this morning. So if it sounds a little bit odd for you as a first point, it'll, it'll get better as it goes on. You can always tell me afterward if it doesn't. But point number one is that God breaks to humble. And this is what we see in the beginning of the song. There's a lot of brokenness, there's outcasts, there's brokenhearted, and there's a need for building up. And this all, again, centers around the idea of praise and it's helpful to understand the background of the Psalms and what's going on here at this point. But there are, there are three movements, three segments at the end of the Psalms called the Hallel. And the Hallel is simply a way of saying praise. There, th- there are three movements of praise throughout the end of the Psalms, starting in Psalm 118 or one, uh, Psalm 112, and it moves in the third installment of it, the third segment of it begins in Psalm 146. And that's where we are today, in that last section. Psalm 146 praises God instead of princes. Psalm 148 praises God the Creator. Psalm 149 praises God with a new song. And Psalm 150 calls everything in all creation to praise the Lord, summing up the Psalms. But Psalm 147 comes, and it's different. It's different because it is the call of a broken people to praise God. It has the voice of the younger brother in Jesus' parable of the two sons. The voice of someone who knows what the world has to offer, has tasted it, and realized it's not satisfying, who comes back home to the father's house. Psalm 147 is a psalm about broken people praising God. And this is the best thing for us to do, as the psalm shows us. But at the same time, it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally to us to praise God, and it didn't come naturally 
to the Israelites either, especially the psalmist who wrote this, I'm sure. We get a little bit of help in understanding this by the language used in, in the psalm. Psalm 147 says that the Lord builds up Jerusalem, he heals the brokenhearted, and binds up their wounds. If you'll notice in the ESV, especially, the, uh, the title for the psalm is, He Heals the Brokenhearted. And it took me a little while to figure out why that's the case, but I think this is what it's getting at. Brokenhearted is the core concept of the psalm. You see, in, in Hebrew, there's different ways of saying broken. Uh, not just to say broken, but you could say, like in our language, if someone breaks their arm and they go to the hospital, well, it could be a hairline fracture. It could be painful, uh, but it's really not that serious. Maybe you just need a splint. That's not what this word is talking about. And that's not what Psalm 147 is talking about. This word means sundered to a thousand pieces. This is Humpty Dumpty. You're not coming back from this. When you're broken like this, like the psalmist says that they are as a nation, the bones are splintered throughout your body. You're not going to have an easy recovery if you have a recovery at all. As the psalmist begins talking about his own nation's life and where they stand before God and why they're praising God, he begins to say that they're broken, broken beyond all human remedy. They're broken into pieces. And if you're not a a, uh, scholar of the Old Testament, then let me give you my 93 hours worth of seminary education on it. And uh, that is just to say that the people of God in the Old Testament are people who are broken and broken in the deepest kind of way, broken in the heart. You see, God chose his people out of all the people of the earth to represent him. Nobody else in the whole earth would know him or represent him correctly unless he revealed himself, and he did. And if you want to jot this down as a key point in the Old Testament, it would It would uh, be good for you later, but Deuteronomy 7, when God brings his people out of Egypt, talks to Moses, and Moses says this to them in Psalm, or in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, for you, this is the nation of Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, what God tells Moses to tell the people is that You were nothing. This is why I chose you. There is nothing actually in yourself that is praiseworthy or admirable or notable even among the nations of the earth. You were the very least, and this is why I chose you, so that when people look at you, they say, God is great. He keeps his word. He keeps his promise. And not only that, but later on in Deuteronomy, if you want to read it, chapter 31 gives you you a a way to memorize this truth where God comes to Moses and says, you're, you're about to enter the promised land. Your people, 
My people are now about to go in and enter all of the good things that I've promised them, but they will not do it and love me. They will get in the land, they will love all the things, and they will turn from me. So here's what you're going to do, Moses. I'm going to give you a song, and you sing that song to them and teach them the song and memorize it so that generations from now, they will be singing the song about how they're broken and they cannot keep my commandments and how they don't love me from the heart. And as they're reciting the song, they will understand this is what we're doing. It's a harrowing song. Deuteronomy 31 gives us, but it's important because Moses tells the people what he knows already. This people, God's own people, don't have the heart to love him. It's not within them. They fail. Why? Because they're too proud. And their pride would bring down their entire nation, almost destroy it completely, wipe it from the surface of the earth. And we're all this way too, proud. Proud from the heart. It's our human condition. It's sin, our sinful tendency. That when we go through difficult times, what we want to do is say, yes, but I pulled myself up out of it in the midst of the brokenness. And Psalm 147 will have nothing about it. Moses will have nothing about it. God will have nothing about it. Instead, it is brokenness that God is looking for. And in the psalm, we see not only that God breaks, but that he builds. It says that he not only heals the brokenhearted, but he builds up Jerusalem. It's pretty important here that the psalmist doesn't say that God built Jerusalem, God's people, or that he will build Jerusalem, God's people. Those are all certainly true things. But what he is saying instead is that he builds Jerusalem. He's active in it. Even in the brokenness of God's people, he is more active in rebuilding them and setting them straight and healing them than we could ever imagine. God is continually active in the life of his people to build them up in their brokenness. So they are broken, yet God builds. They are building God is building them. And this is so incredibly different than the world and what the world tells us to do. See, the psalmist and Israel have learned by this point in this psalm that in the return of the deportation from Babylon, that they were captured and sent into a foreign country and a foreign nation, and they lost everything that they had. They've learned through that that God has the power and not them. God has the power and not them, and he will break them to bring them to himself. Contrast with this reality, with this truth, today's philosophy. And it's really humanity's philosophy. If you're feeling down, if you are in a place of brokenness, what does secular psychology tell you today? I think it tells you the same thing that Bill Murray tells you, and what about Bob? Which is one of my favorite movies of all time. In the movie, this, this man, this character, Bill Murray, is riddled, Bob. He is riddled with insecurities, riddled with fears, phobias, problems. He has all of them. He has every medication that you can imagine. He has self-diagnosed himself. He knows every psychological term for what's wrong with him. 
And what does he do in the movie but walk around, walk around saying a mantra to himself, I am good, I am great, I am wonderful. I am good, I am great, I am wonderful. It makes you kind of want to watch the movie when you hear it. But that's what he's doing. And in that, he's saying to himself, I'm good. I can lift myself up. I'm great. I'm wonderful. I can inwardly do something where I make something of myself such that I will overcome the obstacles that I have in my life. You may not ever thought that what about Bob was that deep, but it actually is in some ways. That's the philosophy that's everywhere, but this is not what the psalmist says, is it? The psalmist doesn't say, pull yourself up. No, the psalmist says instead, praise. Praise. And that's what we need. That's what we have to have. And so I wonder this morning, just a couple questions on this point. If you're broken, whatever the situation is in life, do you realize that God can put you back together again today? There is no category this doesn't happen in. Whether it's family, your marriage, finances, work, depression. If you are broken, God is the only one who can put you back together again. But not only that, I think there's a question about our own reliance here. That are you resting or are you relying on the power of positive thinking? It's a common phrase these days. Are you, are you resting on positivity or, like the psalmist, are you saying, I will rest on God. I will praise Him. Broken people praise God best because God breaks to humble. Whether it's Old Testament Israel or whether it's us, we need to be broken of our pride and learn to rely on God. God desires humility, and if we won't be humbled, then we will be cast to the ground. But we see a second truth this morning. Not only does God break to humble, but God humbles to give hope. You see, he doesn't leave us there. God doesn't delight in just breaking for breaking's sake. But second, God humbles to give hope. And that's in the next section, verses 7 through 11. And do you know what the voice of someone who has been broken and made whole sounds like? Song. I think song is the most appropriate way to talk about it, and that's how the psalmist does it. He says, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. That's like an old-fashioned guitar in their days. So we're actually on target with Gatlin playing a guitar, not a keyboard this morning. Thank you, Gatlin. But we need that. We need to sing to the Lord. And that's, that's what it looks like. That's what it sounds like for someone who's, who've, who's gone through the deepest and the darkest times of life and yet has found peace and hope and forgiveness and restoration through them, their attitude is rejoicing. It's singing. It's thanksgiving. And the psalm says we have to do that. If we're somebody who's been broken and yet mended, healed, remedied by God, then we are somebody who sings. And so he makes a grand sketch of this in his singing, doesn't he? He says that there's all sorts of great things that God does, that he gives clouds, he gives rain, he gives grass, he gives food. He's describing the world. The earth that we have is a gigantic ecosystem that demonstrates God's faithfulness. 
regardless of what you do, how you go to sleep, when you get up in the morning, God is continually faithful, not just to you, but his creation on the whole. And this causes song to burst forth from this man. Matthew Henry, the uh, English pastor, recognized in this passage this truth, and he said it this way, that praising God is work that is its own wages. I love that. Praising God, which the psalmist is talking about here, is work that is its own wages. That when you get involved in praising God like this and your heart turns to Him and prays, then that in itself satisfies you. All the demands, all the questions, all the things that you have running in your head fall off your mind and you just jump in and enjoy God and who He is. It's remarkable how your attitude will change when you do this. I try to do this from time to time. Not too well, I feel like. But uh, one of the ways I try to practice it is at uh, bedtime with the boys. We, uh, we always circle up, sing a song, Jesus loves me, maybe something else, read a book, and then pray at the end of the day with all our boys. And... Um, I started to ask them this some time ago, right before we pray. We don't do it every night, but it's always helpful to do. What good things has God given us today? That's what I ask. What good things has God given us today? And at first, it was kind of slow, and they'd have to think like, well, I don't, does God give us things? What does he give us? And, and, and now they're pretty quick at it, and so I can ask that, and they immediately start just listing things off. And for, you know, five or ten minutes, it depends on how talkative they are at that point and how tired they are, but they'll just list all these things. And that's often things I completely overlook. God, thank you for Daddy. God, thank you for Mommy. God, thank you for my brothers, all 18 of them, it feels like. <laughs> thank you for ice cream if we had it that day. Thank you. There's, there's no, like, small thing that's not worth mentioning. Thank you for getting to play today. Thank you for my Legos. I don't have the same attitude when I step on them at night, but still, thank you for the Legos. Thank you for video games. Thank you for the food that we had. When you start to experience this gratitude and thankfulness, it changes your mind. It changes your thinking. And I haven't heard it yet, but hopefully one day I'm looking forward to hearing thank you for the spankings. I don't know if that'll ever happen. I don't know if I do that. But this is the attitude that we need. And we need it as a church. And that's why we get together, frankly, every week as a church to sing. It's because when you, when you go out into the week and you're crushed by all the different things that are happening, and you come here on Sundays, what happens? Gatlin leads us, or someone else will lead us in praise, in song. And as we do that, we just start to think about all those things. Man, isn't God good? Hasn't he taken care of me? And it transforms our thinking. And this is really important for us because there are different kinds of psalms, but notice that this psalm doesn't have one complaint or petition in it. I'm not saying that there aren't places for that. There are plenty of psalms. Actually, the majority of the psalms have all sorts of complaints and fears listed in it, but this psalm and the final psalms don't. They don't have any any whiff of it. All they say is just praise, 
Thanks be to God. And plenty of the, plenty of the time, what we do, and I notice what I do, is when I come and pray, I set my time aside to pray, or I pray kind of sporadically in the car, whatever it is, the first things that I start doing within just a few words are, God, will you help me with this? Will you provide for me with this? Will you take care of this? And those are good, but those are petitions. We're asking God to do something, and we need that, but this is not what this psalm does. Instead of having any agendas, any questions, any requests, any complaints, this psalm stands to tell us, and the final five psalms tell us, you don't always have to do that. You see, when you pray, if all, all your prayers entail requests and petitions, you have lopsided prayer. Your prayer life is going to be horribly out of proportion. Why? It's because you're just going to God to get things. And I fall into this too. I, I have time myself sometimes on how, how long it takes me in trying to just think about God and be grateful for Him and meditate on Him to when I, I kind of instantly fall into asking. And that's good sometimes, like I said, but not all the time. Sometimes we just need to sit in awe and wonder about who God is. You can try this out for yourself. Try it the next time that you're sitting in the pickup line for school. You'll have at least an hour around here, maybe two. Just try it and see how long it takes you before you start turning your mind to other things. But this passage also tells us something else. It tells us that God's not impressed by man. And so we, we start to see the ridiculousness of our own pride. You see, he says, his delight, God's delight, is not in the strength of the horse, nor is pleasure in the legs of man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. And there's a little bit of humor, I think, put in here by the psalmist. He says, God doesn't look at legs and say, wow. He doesn't look at legs and say, that's some leg that could really do a lot of good in the world. That's not what God does. But for an old Israelite here, he, he takes the, one of the strongest things in creation, the legs of a horse. They don't have machines. They don't have other things. But what's the strongest thing in their mind? What's going to be a horse? horse is powerful. It's strong. If you have it in battle, it'll save your life. It could change the tide of the war. But even in that, the psalmist starts to tell us, like, if you, if you think about those things which you esteem as the things that you will hope in to save you, and they're not God, then you're, you're off. You're just wrong. Our hope is to be in God. And it's ridiculous because as you start to follow the logic of the psalmist here, you start to see it pretty quickly. You see, God, he gives rain on the earth. He grows the grass. He gives the beasts their food. He does all these things. And so when you start to think about the strongest thing that you can put your hope in, it's not long before you start to realize, well, where, where did the horse get his muscles? Where does, where does man get the, his speed, his strength? It's from God. One of the ways that I'll always remember this is with uh, Usain Bolt. If you remember, Usain Bolt was the, uh, the speedster, basically, in the, in the Olympic Games of Beijing 2018, and he broke the world record, set a new one for the 100-meter dash, along with like six other records that year. And 
uh, everyone was amazed. I was amazed. And I just remember the announcers saying that we've entered the age of video games, which uh, sounds so cool. But at the same time, what is he saying? He says, he's saying that we entered into a time where we've achieved godlike status. We can do whatever we want. And this is not true. It's ridiculous. A 9.69 second 100 meter is amazing, but it's not as amazing as God. Not even close. We're meant to see the ridiculousness of hope outside of God and turn and go to God and say, you are my only hope. Broken people praise God best. Why? It's because God humbles them to give hope. Broken people are the only people, humble people are the only people who learn through their brokenness to put their trust in God and not man. So we learn that God breaks to humble and he humbles to give hope, but it doesn't stop there. If it stopped there, it really wouldn't satisfy. But the next thing that we see in the final verses is that God gives hope to get heartfelt praise. God gives hope to get heartfelt praise. God is after something in the Psalms, and certainly in this Psalm, and we see that it is praise. As the fountainhead of all good things, it's right and appropriate to praise God for them. And to do this, the psalmist starts off again to say praise. In each section, he will talk about it one way or another. At the beginning, he says praise, and the next he says sing, and finally he says praise. This is how we're supposed to live. And instead of just a general call to praise that he's given, now he actually moves specifically and he targets in on not just anybody. It's right for anybody to praise God, and they can do that by saying thank you for the air, thank you for our food. But he targets in on God's own people and says, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem, praise your God, O Zion. He's talking about God's people. And so now he moves from just general praise to God's own corporate praise from his people. And this is what we do on Sunday mornings, and we need it constantly. Not just for individuals, but corporately to come together as a body to talk about God and how great he is and how worthy he is of his own fame. The psalmist gives a list that we see of why God should praise him, why people should give him heartfelt praise. He says, praise the Lord. And he says, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He lists all sorts of things that he gives them safety, health, peace, food. He gives his command, snow, ice, his words, statutes, and rules. And you could kind of focus in on any one of these things and, and probably dig out some meaning in it and think about how wondrous it is. But I don't think that's the psalmist's point. I don't think it's his point because in verse 20, he says that even though God is amazing and done all these things for us, he says he has not dealt thus with any other nation. So he racks up the list of the good things that God's done, and then he says, and the main thing is that he hasn't done this for anyone else. He's done it for us and only us. And we would be tempted at this point to think that he is speaking from pride. It would be easy to do, wouldn't it? Most assuredly, that's not what he's doing because they've just gotten through 
deportation and back into their lane. And so he understands that, as Dr. Seuss has said, they are not the Sneetches with the stars upon Mars. It's not that they're so wonderful. It's not that they're so great. It is that God is great. And now he speaks from that perspective where he's finally learned, yes, God is great. And why is God so great? Why is he so wonderful to this man? It's because he hasn't dealt with any other nation like this. It's not that we're so great, but it's that God in his grace has revealed himself to us. He'll say two times, he'll talk about God's word a lot here, but two times he'll say that he's revealed his rules to us. It's another way of saying that God has, has disclosed himself to us. That of all, out of all the peoples of the earth, we are the only people that God has come to and personally said, I am like this. Know me and love me. It's an amazing thing. And what it causes is heartfelt praise. The psalmist has learned to hope in God with genuine heartfelt praise. If you read this, and it was in the context of a husband to a wife, you would say, this man loves his wife. Because there's adoration in it. There's wonder in it. It's not lip service at all, which is most of what the Old Testament was. Saying, God, I'll worship you, I love you, but from the heart, not really. This man is grateful to God from the bottom of his heart that he called him his own son. And this leaves no room for ethnic pride, and he realizes that. So at the end of the psalm, what we see is that with everything going on in Israel's life, they finally get to a place, at least this point, at least this man, to where he says, it's not about us, it's about you. You're so wonderful because you revealed yourself to us. And this is actually only a shadow of what was to come. It's only a shadow. You see, when you take this kind of praise and admiration and respect rolled into how someone views God, it dims in comparison to how somebody should respond if they actually sit with God, if they actually know God in the flesh. And this is actually what happened. It's a shadow because in the promise given to Abraham and his sons that God talks about why he chose Israel, it's a shadow because God actually came in the flesh that we know Jesus in the incarnation. Jesus came in the flesh. God revealed himself, and this is how John's gospel begins, that the word became flesh. It became incarnate. It, it wrapped itself. Jesus wrapped himself in flesh that we might be able to know him. So however grateful that this psalmist is, or Israel was in Psalm 147, should pale in comparison to how grateful we should be knowing Jesus having him come and live and reveal himself to us. See, we can know what God's actually like. And the psalmist only sees a glimmer of what he's like. And we see the life of Jesus here also. You see, Jesus is the only person in history that didn't need to be broken. He was the only person in history that didn't need to be humbled. But Philippians tells us that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
So Jesus knows what it's like to be broken. He knows what it's like to be humbled. He humbled himself, not because of sin, but because of service. And not only that, but more than anyone else in history, Jesus exemplified what it means to put your hope in God. In Luke 22, we see the classic, iconic scene of Jesus in the garden praying to the Father, relying wholly on the Father. And what does he say? Father, not my will, but yours. Nobody put their hope in God more than Jesus. And not only that, but by his sacrificial life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has created a people who praise God from the heart because they have been saved through faith. As Romans 8 tells us that he is, Jesus is, the firstborn of many brothers. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is actually bringing a whole people to God to worship God from the heart as he desires. That, that may be a truth that you know, that you realize. Maybe you've studied, maybe you memorized Psalm 147. But still, that truth can bounce off us sometimes due to our hard heart. And so let me share you a story that I think helps us to understand it a little bit. It's the story of Louis Zamperini. If you've read the book or seen the movie, you may know what I'm talking about here. But in 2010, Laura Hillenbrand published a book called Unbroken, a World War II story of survival, reliance, and redemption. And in this story, Louis Zamperini, he's a, uh, he's a Italian, son of Italian immigrants, and he's an Olympic runner. Turns out to be one of the fastest people in history, certainly at his time, set some new records, and he entered World War II as it began. And even though he was an Olympian, he's serving in the Air Force, and as he's doing that, his plane crashes down into the ocean. Most of the crew is killed, but he and a couple crewmates survive, and they float in the ocean for 47 days. 47 days. One of the other crew members dies, and he and his friends survive only after 47 days to get picked up by the Japanese get dragged into a prison camp and go from camp to camp and place to place being horribly abused, malnutritioned, and virtually on the edge of death. And in this whole time, he's continually focused out by the commissioner of the prison camp who they nicknamed the bird, a man who just delighted in giving them abuse. And as almost for two years went on, Louis Zamperini endured the suffering, endured the heartache, and in an iconic scene at the end of it, just before World War II ends, holds up a wooden beam, is forced to hold up a wooden beam, and is told that if he drops it, he will be shot dead. And so he holds it up for hours in the sun, after already working in the coal mines and, and being somebody who is... Who is horribly weak, yet he does this, and the iconic scene in the movie, which is shared in the book, is that he holds up this beam, and then just before he starts to drop it and lose his strength, then he gets some reserve of strength, and he hoists the beam up in defiance to the bird, the person over this whole operation, and essentially, by his work, demonstrates that he will not be conquered. He will not give up. He will not die. He will continue on, 
And as he does, he sends the bird into this fury where he ends up striking him and then losing the wooden beam, and he actually survives and continues until the end of the war. It's an iconic scene, and at that point, when he kind of crosses the threshold of what most people would consider utter failure, he succeeds and then returns home as a war hero. And that's pretty much where the movie ends. The book continues on and tells you a little bit more of what happened. But as I see that story, it's incredible to see someone go, go through such adversity and difficulty and survive. Absolutely incredible. I can't imagine what 47 days, let alone two years in a prison camp, would do to you. But there's a great tragedy involved here. And I think the tragedy is involved in the title, Unbroken. You see, when Zamperini actually got home, he married, had a daughter, and shortly after became an alcoholic because he couldn't take it anymore. He was, he was overcome with nightmares every night about the mistreatment and the abuse that he would get in the prison camps or the sharks jumping over his raft at sea. He was a broken man. He was a broken man, that is, until he met Christ. And in the 1950s, he met Christ. Billy Graham gave a revival in Los Angeles where he actually met Zamperini and shared the gospel with him. And he wrote about him in his autobiography. Let me read a little bit of what he said. He said that although he, that Zamperini, was a famous athlete and a war hero, he came home feeling unhappy, disillusioned, and broken in spirit. So he says, he's broken. He's a broken man. One night, he wandered into our tent in Los Angeles, and his wife accepted Christ, and his life was transformed. You see, what Billy Graham noted was that Zamperini was not an unbroken man. He was broken. Through all of the experiences that he had, he had a horribly broken life. And Zamperini, actually, you won't see it uh, in the movie or in the book, but in an interview with some, some uh, Christian editors, he said that it was at that moment that he became a Christian, that as he went into the revival tent and heard the gospel, that he felt a weight come off of him that he couldn't explain. And from that moment forward, he had no more nightmares about the prison camp. Not one. And he actually died in 2014, and nearly at the age of 100, at 97, he re recounts the story of that day in 1950, hearing the gospel, marking his life to where as a broken man, he was changed by the news, the good news of Jesus Christ, so much that he lost all of the nightmares that he had in the prison camp, hadn't had one since. And not only that, we would say, that's amazing. That is an incredible, gripping story of the power of Christ in life. But it doesn't stop there. Zamperini, in the 50s, 1950s, after becoming a Christian, gets on a plane and flies to Japan to meet with every single one of his captors in the prison camp. And he meets with them not to ridicule them, which he could have easily done, but he meets with them to go and share the gospel. And he tells them, he tells them that I forgive you. 
I forgive you for mistreating me and abusing me and ridiculing me. And there was only one person that refused to meet with him, and it was the bird. It was the man over the prison camp. And it's a, a sad story that he wouldn't meet with Zamperini. But the beauty is that Zamperini met with every single one of his other captors, and he said, I forgive you. Let me tell you about why I can forgive you. I've been transformed. I was defiant, but now I am a broken man, and God has healed me and saved me. Much like the psalmist here, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. See, what Zamperini learned is what we have to learn. The God and only God, Jesus and only Jesus in the gospel, can heal your brokenness. He binds up our wounds in Christ. Broken people praise God best. Why? Because God gives hope to get heartfelt praise. When he gives you hope and you get healing, God gets heartfelt praise. It's no longer about you, it's about him. People who look to God for hope find satisfaction in Jesus Christ who suffered, died, and rose to give them a new heart. Everyone can praise God, but only people who have experienced this redemption, this story, this gospel, this Jesus can praise God from the heart. Praise God that he has revealed himself to us in his Son. May we be broken and praising people like this. Let me pray. God, we thank you for the story of Louis Samparini and what you've done in his life. We thank you for the story of this psalmist who came to grips with your loving kindness in the midst of brokenness. God, we thank you that you break to humble, that you humble to give hope, and that you give hope that we might put our praise in you. And Lord, this morning as we sit and meditate and think on Psalm 147, Lord, I ask that you would drive it into our heart and that instead of just requests and just petitions that we come before you, especially now as we respond in singing, to say that, God, you're worthy. God, you're good. You're worthy of praise. And would you transform us more into the image of your Son as we praise you. In your name, amen.